Welcome. Welcome to the December Citizens Climate Lobby Call. Uh, I love seeing all those beautiful lobbying pictures with the lobby groups. It's so much at the heart of who we are and what we do. My name is Mark Reynolds. I'm a member of the CCL staff, and I'll be hosting today's call. What I'd like you to start doing now is dropping in the chat some of the things that you're proud of that your chapter accomplished this year. Uh, what we'll be doing is in a little bit, we'll be reviewing some of those so that uh, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe the amount of media you got published, maybe your meetings with members of Congress, maybe it was something local. Like if you read our weekly bulletin this week, you saw that our Philadelphia chapter worked with Amtrak to get them to stay with a clean set of energy rather than transitioning over to a dirty uh, form of energy. Or maybe it was something regarding our year-end fundraiser. So if, if you would start dropping in the chat the accomplishments that you're proud of, we would love to see that. We exist for two reasons. One is to create the political will for a livable world. We choose to engage. Some people choose to sit on the sidelines. We choose to engage. And we exist to empower people to have breakthroughs in their personal politi and political power. What's gonna be happening today is in a few minutes, I'll be introducing Amanda Ripley. And I really think Amanda is, um, you know, she was one of our keynotes for the June 22 conference. Uh, I think she fits in that category of people that we need to hear from a little bit more often. You know, the Catherine Hayhoes, the Hari Hans, the Bob Inglis, the Sam Daly Harris. So we'll be hearing from her in a few minutes. Then we're going to go over some of the things that we've uh, accomplished since our last call. Um, we'll get a year in review, uh, and then we'll finish the call with a couple of things. One is we will um, have our, what we call CCL TV, which is the roving camera that for those chapters that have a chance to meet in person, we'll um, flash over to you and be able to show you so you can, you'll be able to see the chapters that are meeting in person. And then I'll talk a little bit about next month's call. So in terms of um, uh, what's happened since last month's call, so first of all, our fall conference, you know, we had people registered from all 50 states and the District of Columbia. We had people from uh, 15 other countries. We ended up with 1,492 people attending. And you can still, if you missed any of that, if you want to review it, you can see the uh, session from Van Jones, Danny Richter, our Governor Affairs Department, some of the breakout sessions. And importantly, uh, following the fall conference, there were 373 meetings. That means we are at 1,291 meetings year to date, which is really important because corporations spend billions of dollars lobbying. But what we have is regular citizens who lobby on behalf of the planet. And so having 1,291 meetings is really, really important. The meeting notes tell us really interesting things about um, the meetings. It looks like there were very productive conversations about permitting reform in general and the Big Wires Act. And it, on the Big Wires Act, we had a goal of having 2,500 people contact the members of the House and Senate. Uh, we actually had 2,961 people who contacted their members of the House and Senate. So congratulations on that. But it looked like a lot of progress was made on uh, the Big Wires Act and permitting reform in general from reviewing the meeting notes. Uh, also, since last uh, our last call, we have been asking senators, particularly Republican senators, to introduce carbon border adjustment mechanism bills. And the uh, foreign pollution fee bill was introduced since our last call. Also, this week, the Market Choice Act was reintroduced. This is a big deal because it's a bipartisan bill on carbon pricing again. So thanks to Representative Fitzpatrick and Carbajal, it has a more aggressive um, 
price point uh, in terms of where it starts and where it continues than it was last time. And so that's a really big deal to have a bipartisan and carbon pricing bill. So Flannery, can you tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in the chat about things that people are excited about uh, for what they've had since uh, last, the, for this year? Yes, absolutely. So they're coming in fast and furious. I'll try to keep up. So Debbie says we started an active chapter. Um, Carol says in New York, 100% success in scheduling in-person lobby meetings in DC in June. Very high success rate with getting virtual lobby meetings in November. Alex says in Illinois, we lobbied both senators and 15 out of 17 representatives. Terry says they hosted a film screening. Abe says they met with both of their, their representatives during the fall conference. Um, lots and lots coming in. Carol says, growing our chapter, building relationships with members of Congress, tabling, presentations. So they're doing it all. Um, and Gwen says, uh, we have had lots of fun together as a group, which I think is an, an underrated part of this work. We do... Mm. Uh, keep each other company while we uh while we do this important work um okay so the raritan valley chapter in new jersey says our chapter did 12 climate presentations in 2023 and they've set a goal for 20 presentations next year wow. steven says they've collected 70 constituent letters uh at tabling events that they've delivered to their members of congress and Karen says that uh, she did 25 En-ROADS presentations, including a simulation game several times. Um, so they've been doing those presentations at uh, conferences, at the public library, for college classes. Um, David says they've got 15 students uh, from their chapter who went to DC in June. Robert says they started a chapter in the Bronx. Linda says five times more tabling than last year. Bill in Asheville says two municipal climate action plans and one in progress, and they published 14 letters and op-eds so far this year. So people okay. are rocking amazing, out Mark. <laughs> amazing, 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 amazing. I especially want to uh, send out a welcome to the chapters that are relaunched or started since last month's call, which includes Zanesville, Ohio, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So welcome to all of you. Uh, most of you are probably aware that our year-end fundraiser launched on Giving Tuesday. We had a goal to raise $300,000. And if we re raised that, we, there was a $125,000 match. We actually raised $326,000. So thank you all who, who donated. Uh, that also allowed us to get a $125,000 match. As of this morning, when I checked about an hour ago, we were at $613,000. So we're at about halfway through to our uh, goal of $1.25 million. Um, you know, uh, this is a really different kind of organization. 75% of our income comes from individual donations. So it's not just that this is a volunteer run organization. It's also a volunteer funded. Most nonprofits are funded by foundations. We're actually funded by you. So for all of you who've been able to donate, thank you so much. For those of you who are thinking about donating, just think about all the things that were just reported. That's what that work goes towards. Uh, and I think this time of year, it's also good to think about inviting your family and friends. You know, my brother John made a donation yesterday and it was so happy because I reached out to my family this time of year and to have one of my family members actually donate was a, was a really big deal. So thank you if you have donated. If you would please continue to reach out to people, that would be really, really great. So our guest, Amanda Ripley. Um, 
is a New York Times bestselling author, a Washington Post contributing columnist, an investigative journalist, and the co-founder of the Good, Good Conflict LLC. Her books include High Conflict, The Smartest Kids in the World, and The Unthinkable. Discuss, to discuss her writing, Amanda has appeared on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and NPR. She's spoken at the Pentagon, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security. And Amanda, as I said earlier, was a keynote speaker for our conference in uh, June of 2022. So Amanda, it is so great to see you again. Thank you for being on. We have some pre-prepared questions and then we'll turn it over to our membership. So first of all, welcome. Good to see you, Mark. It's good to be with you all. I always feel better just listening to you uh, reel <laughs> off these accomplishments. So I'm, I'm honored to be with you again. Mm, thank you. Uh, so you've been called a solution journalist. Uh, why do you think it's important to focus on solutions? Well, traditionally, journalism has been very focused on the problems, um, which is important, right? But we know enough now about human psychology to know that humans need a few things that traditional journalism is not giving us, right? Um, and one thing we need is a sense of hope and a sense of agency. And there's just a ton of research on this. As my friend David Bornstein, who founded the Solutions Journalism Network, says, he's like, you know, it's a biological need for hope. And it's sort of like if, if restaurants just didn't give people water um, because it's not fun for them, it doesn't excite them, you know, <laughs> but like people need hope and just like we need water. So it's the kind of thing that I don't think journalism has fully uh, appreciated. And I think there is some improvement thanks to the Solutions Journalism Network. But it's something that we need and it doesn't need, I mean, as you all know, hope is not um, airy-fairy, you know, frivolous optimism. It is the idea that things should be different than they are and an action plan for getting there. So rigorously reported hope is what we need, not just kind of silly stories. Yeah, okay, love that. Um, you, also, you are also the co-founder of Good Conflict. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that organization? Yeah, so uh, after my last book, High Conflict, came out, I started hearing from a lot of journalists, but also other organizations and, and you know, people like uh, rabbis and pastors and superintendents and college presidents and all kinds of folks who are struggling with conflict. And they wanted help turning the ideas in the book into kind of practical applications and how do you generate a culture of healthy conflict in your organization. So I teamed up with a friend and, and journalist colleague of mine named Helen B. and Duty Hofer and we started Good Conflict. Uh, and so we do workshops and we create original content around conflict, understanding it better, creating a shared vocabulary around it and figuring out ways to generate it, good healthy conflict um, on purpose because the goal isn't no conflict, right? The goal is, is a healthier kind of conflict. Okay, so that's really interesting. One of the things that's always interesting to me is language. Um, and so can you elaborate on some of the vocabulary that you've developed around conflict and, and some of the, the, the things that are you know, providing use to people? Yeah, so I spent uh, you know, five or six years following people who study intractable conflict in particular. Um, the kind of conflict that we're in as a country politically, um, but we often see that same kind of conflict, which is sometimes called high conflict or malignant conflict. We see it in um, 
clearly, you know, in Israel and Gaza, we see it in Ukraine, we see it in domestic violence, gang violence. There's lots of examples of conflict that becomes conflict for conflict's sake, mm. where it no longer operates according to the normal rules of engagement. And you have to do very different things in that kind of conflict. So it can be helpful just to know the phrase high conflict and to think about what are the tripwires that we know lead to it um, and then have a shared vocabulary around that. So there are kind of four reliable conditions that lead to high conflict. Um, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. So just very quickly, those four are humiliation, corruption, binary, false binaries, like a sort of false dichotomy, like you're either this or you're that, you're Republican, Democrat, you're pro or con, right? Um, and then uh, conflict entrepreneurs, which are people or companies that exploit conflict for their own ends. So every high conflict I've ever seen, you know, from uh, the civil war in Colombia to politics in the US to gang violence, there's always all, all four conditions are present. Huh, so, um... Yeah, so uh, high conflict is one of the most interesting things that I've heard you talk about and that, that we're really interested in because it looks like, you know, it's winning and losing is not just enough. It's one thing you just mentioned, which you've got to humiliate the people you disagree with. Um, and are there, you know, if, if we look at history, are there times where moments like this have happened and can we anticipate, you know, uh, we're almost, you know, three years from the end of this, or, or, is, or is there no way to predict how we get ourselves out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I would like to be able to say that, you know, we're turning the corner, but I mean, most of the indicators we have that predict political violence in particular suggest mm. that unfortunately things will probably get worse before they get better. Um, you do need to get to a level of exhaustion with the conflict for people to change on mass, um, and I do think we are seeing that. I think we would mm. probably all agree that there is a level of exhaustion that's pretty universal at this point. Um, but at the same time, we've got people dialing up the threat level, and that's what leads to violence. Like violence mm. comes from perceived threat. So the more people and media outlets are dialing up the threat level, some of it real and legitimate, and some of it embellished. Yeah. Um, and by this way, this also includes very much journalists and how journalists cover things like um, war, but also things like Trump and also things like climate change. <laughs> the more it feels like we are in an existential threat, the more likely you are to get um, sporadic, unpredictable violence, usually by a small number of people who are, uh, you know, struggling for other reasons. And this becomes a way for them to find purpose and permission to be mm. violent. And then once you get into that, right, it's, it's, you get, you know, more fear, more threat, more retribution, and it's very hard to get out. So that's the depressing um, answer, but let me, let me follow that up with, um, I, I actually find a lot of hope in the number of people who are just longing for something different. And I think mm. we all feel that. And that's probably why a lot of folks are here longing for a sense of, um, self-efficacy, a sense of solidarity, a sense of a different way to be in conflict, the more people we have who feel that way and the more outlets and movements we have to offer them, because you have to have somewhere to go or you're just going to go back or you're going to withdraw, which is what most people do, mm -hmm. um, then the better positioned we are when violence happens to act very quickly, you get, you get like 24 hours um, after a shock in high conflict to do something differently. 
And uh, there's this moment where it's like the plates are spinning, right? And people are thinking, oh my gosh, like something's got to change here. Uh, but you got to really prepare for those shocks. And I do see more and more movements and groups preparing for it, um, not as much as I'd like, right? But I did two dinners this week with congressional staff on the Senate and House side talking about this exact thing about high conflict and the triggers of high conflict. And, um, you know, they often feel as powerless as everyone else does, which is sort of funny. Um, but that's how, the, that's how it feels to be in a high conflict system, you know? So it feels like you're helpless in the face of it. Um, so a lot of this is just helping people imagine a different way and giving people options, like you know. I mean, you, this is what you do, right? And mm -hmm. so it's so powerful to give people something real to do. And even when they're small steps, if they're meaningful and they create community, it is just the exact opposite <laughs> of what brought us into the situation and it's so mm -hmm. important. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. What we're trying to do is just give people a sense of agency so that they have something they can do, uh, and a community also. I think those two things are, are absolutely essential. Um, so what, what did you tell the staffers? I mean, what kind of advice did you give them about, you know, what, what can they do? Well, we, we found that, uh, so this is with a group called Care Lab, um, and it's entirely, you know, off the record uh, as to who goes and, and what exactly we talk about, but but I can say that, um, and I apologize, I'm on the road here, so my, hopefully it's not too loud in the background. Um, but uh, the idea is to start um, internally. So most of us um, can't control a lot of conflict that we encounter, right? We wish we could, um, but we have to start in our own heads. So how do we stay in good conflict in our own heads? And there's two reasons for that. One is we will make fewer mistakes. So in whatever fight we're fighting, we will see opportunities and make fewer mistakes if we're in good conflict as opposed to high conflict, right? In high conflict, you inevitably, and this is so heartbreaking, you inevitably start to harm the thing you went into the fight to protect. It happens every single time, whether it's your, your kids or your country. You start to mimic the behavior of your opponents and you start to harm the thing that you hold most dear. Uh, because you're in a trance from the high conflict, right? So if you can stay in good conflict, it's a much more effective way to fight. And the second reason is it's much easier to sleep at night. It's just a less miserable way to move through the world. I know for me, it's been really, really helpful to kind of try very hard to stay in good conflict so that I'm not, for example, lumping people together into one group. I'm not um, I'm not humiliating people on Twitter. I'm not, uh, I don't, I'm not entertained by it. I'm not excited by it, um, and it's just a, a very different way, I'll be honest, than, than how I used to move through the world, you know, 10 years ago. Hmm. Amazing. Um, <clears throat> Flannery, uh, what kind of questions are there from our membership? I mean, in my own case, Amanda, I just try and encourage my friends both on the right and left to stop watching the cable shows. I just don't think yeah. it helps. And, yep. you know, I mean, why do you want to find out why you hate the people you disagree with? I, I mean, you can do that once. You don't need to do it every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, anything where you just feel you start to feel your heart raise and you still feel really angry and uh, also have nothing to do with that. And that you have nothing, nowhere to go with it. Um, yeah. It is. <laughs> you know, I was just funny. I've been doing a lot of research for a project I'm working on on uh, 
depression and anxiety and cognitive distortions. Mm. So I was reading this book about cognitive behavioral therapy and like all the major cognitive distortions that lead to um, depression and anxiety. And it was literally like you could check a box. Every single one is what happens on cable TV news. It's like um, all or nothing thinking, fortune telling, like predicting the future, catastrophizing, um, minimizing the positive and max magnifying the negative. I mean, <laughs> it was incredible. And this is also true, by the way, for, for you know, digital print, um, other kinds of media, but it's particularly salient with TV. So um, we know from the research that TV video news is, is incredibly emotional. Um, so it's, it's very hard to use it in a generative, useful, healthy way. Yeah, and, and we know that 20% of Americans watch two to four hours of it. I mean, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, yeah, wow. It's not good. No, it's not good. Flannery, what, what, uh, what do you have out there? All right, so we have a question from Daniela asking, what are some of the characteristics of an organization or a group that has healthy conflict? Yeah, I actually followed a couple different communities who have shifted out of high conflict into healthy conflict and trying to figure out this exact algorithm, like what do you do first, second, third, tell us. Uh, and I'd say there's a few things they all had in common. The first is that they had, just like Mark said, they've turned down the volume on conflict entrepreneurs in their midst. Um, sometimes that's easy to do, like you turn off the TV, but often it's hard to do, right? Um, you can't necessarily distance yourself from conflict entrepreneurs in every organization or family or neighborhood or country. Um, so in that case, there's another series of things you can do, um, which we can talk about if you want, but you want to lower the volume and distance yourself from conflict entrepreneurs. That's kind of like step one. So you can kind of, you know, have a little space to maneuver. Um, and then the next step is to get very curious about the understory of the conflict. So that's like the thing it's really about, not the thing we keep arguing about. Um, and there's going to be different understories for different people, but you want to first figure out what it is for you and then figure out what it is for your, um, your opponent or people you disagree with, right? It's like, and that requires really listening to them. Um, and it's going to, again, it's going to differ depending on different people. But usually in high conflict, um, humiliation is somewhere in the mix and you want to try to figure out where that is, whether it should be there or not, right? Um, and figure out if you can avoid humiliation or even, God forbid, uh, try to repair humiliation, even if it wasn't your fault, you know? Um, because that is often driving, like an engine driving the conflict. And if we don't figure out what we're really fighting about, then we just have a bunch of nonsense fights and never do the hard work of the real conflict that we need to fight about. All right, our next question is from Cynthia asking, how do you stay in good conflict or healthy conflict in your own head? <laughs> oh my gosh, Cynthia, every day, every day I do a bunch of things and it's not easy, right? I mean, um, the, the first thing I do now, I'm a, I can't believe I'm saying this because I 10 years ago would have <laughs> rolled my eyes, but I, I meditate for 10 minutes every morning and um, other people pray, other people do other things. I try to exercise every day and I'm fortunate to be able to do that, but I find that to be really, really important. Um, and a lot of what you're doing there, right, is um, kind of getting some space from your own thoughts, you know, so that you're not believing everything you think, which is um, a signature of high conflict. 
and so uh, that's one thing. But then the other things I do is I try to really highlight and share news stories that complicate the narratives that I'm kind of most enchanted by. Um, news stories, for example, that show us how much division there is, say, um, within Israel or within the Palestinians or um, news stories about communities trying to solve hard problems, even if they fail. That's a story I'll try to share widely um, because, you know, we have this feeling like there's like the news and that's what keeps us informed. But, you know, this is an incredibly distorted view on what's happening. So I'm always trying to kind of widen the lens on that. And uh, I do this with my friends. We have a group chat where we, we have, um, you know, Fun News Friday where we share around like serious, rigorous, but hopeful news about um, things that are happening in the world that matter and that aren't just like, you know, cute dogs and babies. For a while, they kept sending cute dogs and babies. And I was like, guys, this is great. You do that any, any day, like on Fun News Friday, let's try to make it like actually, um, actually serious and impactful news. And there's, there, are, there are those stories out there. So a lot of it's been changing my news diet as well. Great advice. All right, we have one last time for one last question from our folks and then Mark has a, a final question for you. Um, so this last question from Ken is, how do we apply this understanding when we disagree with, uh, the members of Congress that we are trying to persuade? How do we stay in healthy conflict with, uh, with our lawmakers themselves? Ooh, this is the fun stuff, right? I mean, you're, you're in a really, this is where we are all living in a very challenging moment, in case it wasn't obvious. And we have to operate with incredible creativity and discipline and self-control. And I know you all prepare for those meetings really well. And there's a lot I don't know about the process and what you're up against. But I guess if it were me, I can say I would have done a lot of research beforehand on what this person really cares about. So let's say they're, they're like the worst case scenario. Let's say they're a conflict entrepreneur member of Congress, right? Who's like actually enjoys inflaming and inciting conflict um, and maybe doesn't agree on almost anything <laughs> that I want to talk about. Um, I got some very good advice from a conflict mediator named Gary Friedman. He said, if the person's 80% conflict entrepreneur, see if you can speak to the 20%. What else do they care about? And you do this even in really violent conflict. You know, it's like mm. usually that 20%, not always, but often it has to do with their kids or their family. So that doesn't mean you like creepily go in there and start like talking about their daughter, right? Uh, but it's like, what else do they care about? And I kind of know that and I kind of have it in my pocket. It, ideally, it's something I care about too. Um, but first, I'm really trying to listen to them. And I know this is, you don't have much time, right? When you're in there, like you have very little time. But uh, we, you know, we do a tactical listening technique called looping um, where we really prove to the person we're, we're trying to get them because people won't listen to you until they feel heard. And I found that this is true for members of Congress too, right? Uh, they wanna feel heard and seen just as much as anyone else, probably more, uh, so on average. So how can we do that very quickly in ways that um, are very genuine and then try to get to things we both care about, which is probably the air we breathe and the future our children will uh, live in. 
Yeah, it's interesting, Amanda. Sometimes you can pick up on those things just by how their office is decorated. You know, there's yes. something there that will tell you, oh, they love this, right? And so, <laughs> totally. you know, and we both love that. You know, we both love the buffalo or, or whatever it is they're offering there. So, yeah. Amanda, sometimes on your Instagram page, you talk about one minute of hope. Do you have something that you could uh, tell us that you're hopeful about right now? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, thank you for asking. Um, so I just finished, I uh, spent much of the summer doing kind of a painful deep dive on the pandemic because I was updating my first book, which is called The Unthinkable and about how humans behave in big disasters, right? And it, it came out 16 years ago, which was like 600 years basically. So I had to update it. We had to put a bunch of new things in about climate change, about the pandemic, other things. Anyway, in doing this research, I came across like this amazing fact, which I didn't know, and maybe you all know this, but I found it really hopeful, which is so we know that the frequency of natural disaster, natural disasters, right? So by that, I mean, you know, earthquakes, extreme heat, cold, you know, hurricanes, weather events, frequency, frequency has increased, right? And also the costliness has increased dramatically. But the, the uh, fatality rates have gone way down. And there's a chart that our world and data created that shows you this. It's really striking. Um, but in the mid nine, most of you know the mid nineties, most of the century, you, we were losing about a million people a year globally to natural disasters, and now it's somewhere between ten and fifty thousand, depending on the year. So from a million to ten to fifty thousand. Well, what happened? Since we know it's not like there are fewer disasters, right? Well, what happened is that we, as humans, societies, became much much better at predicting extreme threats, and then building enough trust to get people to do something about it just in time. And we need to do things less just in time <laughs> than we've been doing them. But it's actually an amazingly hopeful story about how humans can act collectively in the face of extreme threats, um, which I've found very hopeful. Wow. Amanda, thank you so much. We were so excited to have you on again and to you know, have you back on a regular basis. And your work is so important to us. And thank you so much uh, for everything you're doing and for making yourself available today. Likewise. Thank you for having me back. And good luck to all of you. I hope to see you here in D.C. very soon doing the good work that you do. Yep. We'll be back there next summer. All right. Great. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Bye -bye. Amanda. Okay. Whew. Okay, we had a couple more things to do. Uh, Flannery's going to do a year in review and talk about what we're doing this month. And then we'll do the CCL TV, which is we'll flash on the people that are meeting together. And I have a final comment to end today. So Flannery, back to you. All right. Thank you, Mark. So highlights from the year. Um, as I was thinking back about this with some other folks on staff, it seemed like a few themes emerged from this year's big moments. So we thought there were there were moments where our lobbying prowess was really on clear display. There were encouraging bipartisan steps forward on climate policy. And there were examples just over and over and over again of our momentum and strength as a grassroots group. So let's take a look at some of those moments. Our biggest show of lobbying strength is always our Capitol Hill Lobby Day each summer. So here's our group photo on the steps from this year. After this photo was taken, you went on to hold 436 lobby meetings on that same day, which is just incredible. We also saw special lobbying events at other times throughout the year. So here's our conservative conference and lobby day that happened this spring, where our right of center volunteers held meetings with just Republican offices. 
And then here's a shot from Texas, one of several states who held state lobby days. So in Texas, they had 66 meetings with state legislators, 47 Republicans and 19 Democrats. And the idea with this state lobby day is that by pushing state lawmakers, it helps move the congressional delegation forward too. And of course, just last month, we had our November virtual lobbying, as Mark mentioned at the start of the call, with 373 virtual lobby meetings happening mostly the Monday and Tuesday right after our fall conference. And all of that lobbying led to some exciting movement on policy this year. So we saw the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act reintroduced this fall, our favorite carbon pricing bill. So here's Representative Salud Carbajal in California announcing his reintroduction of the bill. You can see there on the picture on the left, he's got a CCL pin on. He's standing with Olivia Malonis, our CFO. Um, and at that event, he said, I'm hoping that we'll continue to grow support and momentum and get it over the finish line sooner rather than later. Uh, and speaking of carbon pricing, as Mark mentioned, just this past Thursday, Republican Representative Brian Fitzpatrick introduced his carbon pricing bill, the Market Choice Act, and Representative Carbajal joined him on that bill as a co-sponsor as well. So it's very exciting to see our continued advocacy around this policy idea bear fruit in the form of carbon pricing bills continuing to be introduced. And we also saw a new bill come on the scene this year after lots of productive discussions around uh, clean energy permitting reform, the Big Wires Act. So it was introduced by Senator Hickenlooper in the Senate there on the left and Representative Peters in the House there on the right. And last but not least, we also saw the conversation around carbon border adjustment mechanisms or CBAMs really take some big leaps forward this year. So first there was the introduction of the Prove It Act from Democratic Senator Chris Coons and Republican Senator Kevin Kramer. And the Prove It Act would essentially lay groundwork for a CBAM. And then a few months later, Republican Senators Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham introduced the Foreign Pollution Fee Act. Uh, and just this past week, Senator Coons reintroduced his Clean Competition Act, another CBAM bill. So these bills are all major signals that our lobbying on CBAMs over the last few years is really resonating, and there's potential for meaningful bipartisan work in this area. So that's encouraging progress to see. And the bipartisan signals continued this year. Uh, we saw the reformation of the Bipartisan House Climate Solutions Caucus, led by Andrew Garbarino and Chrissy Houlihan. And for their first meeting of this Congress, the Climate Solutions Caucus held a staff level briefing about clean energy permitting reform, which they invited CCL to give the presentation for. So our very own research coordinator there, Dana Nuccitelli, uh, he brought the climate nerd magic to that briefing. And then soon after that briefing, the caucus wrote and released a bipartisan letter urging house leadership to work together on clean energy permitting reform. And uh, our CCL liaisons out there who work with caucus member offices also encourage those offices to sign on to the letter. So this is a really, a really great joint effort from everybody. And we also heard from some major speakers this year. So Van Jones opened up our November conference last month with a really powerful message on bipartisanship and climate that I think is worth revisiting. Um, he said, I like doing bipartisan work because it's just a smart way to do it. Republicans don't win every election, Democrats don't win every election, but we've got to have a stable governing majority for the next two or three decades to solve this problem. And so the right strategy is to be as big tent as possible, as inclusive as possible, and try to help both political parties develop real champions on this issue. 
We also heard from Bill McKibben at our June meeting. He was cheering on our clean energy permitting reform work. And then we had lots more wonderful speakers, learning and connection at this year's inclusion conference in the fall. So this is a wonderful annual event hosted by CCL's affinity action teams. It's by volunteers, for volunteers. It's all about connecting and collaborating. The more we can create a welcoming space in CCL, the more people can get involved, growing our organization, adding to the political will we need for a livable world. And then, Throughout the year, really, you all showed up with incredible grassroots outreach just day after day. So uh, in April alone for Earth Month, you had 837 outreach events just in April. Um, and in August, when um, members of Congress were back home in their districts, you asked climate questions at 53 town halls just in August. So just all throughout the year, an unstoppable drumbeat of climate conversation and outreach in your communities all around the country. So thank you to all of you who have been part of those activities this year. Uh, I think give yourselves a round of applause. What a year, what a year. So now we're gonna take a look at the actions on the December action sheet. Um, these are gonna help us finish out the year strong and set ourselves up for success in 2024. So we have an exercise on the December action sheet to help you find the center of your chapter's climate advocacy. So this exercise and this Venn diagram here are based off of Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson's TED talk. Uh, and so that's linked in the action sheet if you wanna check it out. But the activity is to think through these questions with your chapter. First, what CCL work brings you joy? What enlivens and energizes you? Then think about what work are you good at? What are your skills, your resources, and your networks? And finally, think about what CCL work needs doing. What additional support for climate action or for a specific policy do you need to build in your community and with your members of Congress in 2024? So you can share and discuss your answers together in your chapter, try to notice common themes where your uh, chapter members' responses are overlapping, and that overlap is the center of your chapter's climate advocacy. So this will prepare you for creating your 2024 chapter action plan in January. So do take some time for this activity. Another action on the December action sheet is to send an appreciation to your member of Congress. This is gonna wrap the year up on the right note and add to the foundation that you've built for a positive working relationship going into 2024. So we've set up an online tool for you to send these messages. The link is there on the screen at cclusa.org slash take action. Um, and we encourage you to customize the message. So add a 2023 appreciation that's specific to your member of Congress, um, maybe even mention a climate policy from CCL's policy agenda that your chapter plans to discuss with your member of Congress next year. And last but not least on the action sheet, um, you can share CCL's posts about our year-end fundraising and ask friends and family to contribute. So we have a social media toolkit available with this graphic and others like it to help you make these posts. And we also have a communication exercise on the action sheet that you can use to practice having these conversations about supporting CCL's work. So that's all I've got. I will hand it back to you, Mark. Okay, great. Uh, I have a, a moment at the end, but uh, like, let's go ahead and see on CCL TV uh, what we can see from the chapters who are able to meet with each other.
Wow, so great to see all of you. Thank you all for being there. Thanks for joining the call today. On next month's call, we're gonna be presenting our roadmap for success, both legislatively and also in terms of chapter development. So I think that's gonna be a really important call because we'll be laying out how we succeed next year, both legislatively and in terms of chapter development. All right, everybody, thank you so much for all you're doing. We'll see you in January. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.